This is a fresh agenda, bringing your productivity and creativity together to generate your deepest work. Here is Christina Mendonca. Hi, everyone. This is A Fresh Agenda, where we chat with innovators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders. I'm Christina Mendonca. Welcome to my little spot in the digital universe, one of my favorite parts of the week where it's quiet in my office, and I just get to have some time with you and a really good conversation with an innovator. So I'm glad to have you here for a little while. Today, we are chatting with an innovator from the broadcast industry. And as I consider who I want to bring on this show, I look for people who speak to the kinds of things that I want to hear about and I want to understand more about. I'm attracted to topics and people who innovate in their own lives and I'm interested in knowing their creative processes and workflows because I might be able to incorporate some of those into my own life and you may find it useful too. And from what I'm hearing, some of you are finding it very useful. So I appreciate all of the feedback I'm getting uh, through email and through the social platforms. So quick story. When I was in high school, I participated in a speech contest. It was put on by one of the service organizations. I want to say it was Lions, but it could have been Rotary. Not sure. Anyway, the topic was, you are the key. I was a sophomore in high school, and I don't remember the content, but I do remember the first line of my speech was, you are the key, I am the key. Brilliant, right? Yeah, belied my future writing prowess, not. Anyhow, I didn't win the contest, but it did come to mind lately when chatting with my upcoming guest, Mike McNamara, we were talking about the trajectory of a broadcast or a journalism career and how it's changed in the last decade. And he said to me, Christina, what you're doing right now, you're really a bridge. So apparently I'm not the key, I'm a bridge. And not just me, but people who spent a large amount of their professional lives in traditional journalism and broadcast careers who are now doing it more like it's done today, digitally, and with many new technologies and techniques and multi-channel and multi-platform. And it's not just broadcast. So many of you are working for perhaps a government agency that has to be multi-channel and multi-platform, or public relations, or sales, or real estate or education, or entrepreneurism, or a combination of several of those. So if you're of a certain age, Gen Xers, I'm talking to you, you are a bridge. You bridge the gap between the way you came up right behind the baby boomers in a traditional career path, and many of you have had to pivot in your later careers to be more flexible, more changeable, more gig-oriented in your career path. And I'm speaking generally here because there are plenty of baby boomers that are just rock stars on social. They're totally disrupting their industries, just kicking ass. And plenty of millennials that are focused on more traditional career paths in research or academe. But generally speaking, Gen X is right there in the middle of that disruption of work habit and therefore really well positioned to play in both worlds. So broadcast is just one of many industries in flux right now, still in flux, has been in flux for many years now with new technology changing the delivery of all kinds of information. Information really is just a commodity now. I heard this put best by an author uh, and thought leader, Dan Pink. Great books, by the way, look him up. He said, a child in the third world and a top scientist at an American university have the same access to the same information if they have a decent internet connection. Information is no longer only held in higher institutions and libraries and think tanks and research facilities. It is freely available. You look at things like the Khan Academy, which if you have a kid that's struggling in math or history or English, 
remember that K-H-A-N, Khan Academy. It's a great free tutorial website. So information is out there for free. There are some paywalls on journalism, journalism sites popping up right now as they try to figure out how to monetize. But many of the articles, or at least the synopsis of the topics, are available for free on other sites. So if information is free-flowing, where is the value in delivering it? How do broadcasters and journalists convince people to access their high-quality researched material when it's easier to get information from a slapped-together AI-constructed web video? Have you seen those, by the way? The grammar is often horrible and the cadence of the automated voice is odd and off-putting to me at least, drives me nuts, but it is an option for getting information. So our guest today is Mike McNamara. Now I met Mike as I do so many others on social. We know a lot of the same people in the broadcast world and we have recently had some face-to-face -face conversations. He intrigued me because he writes regularly on the topics of talent, broadcast, and hard truths about looking at your professional life no matter what industry you're in. He founded MBAR LLC, which provides discreet and confidential consultation to highly visible executives and multimedia talent. That means people that you see on TV quite a bit are people that he represents. He focuses on talent management, strategic planning, and branding, and has worked on many multimedia startups. But before we get into taking a hard look at your career with Mike, let me tell you about the good folks at New Age Aerial. They provide more than a bird's eye view. They capture beautiful vistas, breathtaking overviews, and have an understanding really of how things should look from above. From film to commercial photography and video, the drone team at New Age Aerial can get you what you need for a fraction of the cost of hiring a pilot and plane. Their experienced flyers, government agencies trust them. They even can send up a drone with guided monitoring from an engineer from your facility on the ground to tell them exactly what kind of pictures you need to get. Not only do they have the tech skills, they are artists getting those unforgettable and scenic shots that open movies, show off that piece of property, or thrill at the beginning of large business presentations. I'm thrilled to have them as a sponsor of this show because they are innovators in drone technology and use. New Age Aerial. Check them out online, newageaerial.com. Mention us, Fresh Agenda. They'll take good care of you. Now, my conversation with Mike McNamara. Mike McNamara joins me now, and I talked about you, Mike, in your introduction, so people have an idea of what you do uh, for a living now, um, but tell me a little bit about television and what your clients tell you, because a lot of people have misconceptions about what the job of being a, a television journalist is today. Yeah, Christina, I, I think what uh, most people don't know is that there's really kind of a new breed uh, of television reporter out there today. Um, they're inside the the uh, broadcast news business. They're called MMJs, multimedia journalists, and they are really, um, or they're called a backpack journalist. But they are really a one man band. And if you think about when the news comes on in the morning, some markets it's 4 a.m. That means that uh, people need to be in the street and be prepared to go. Probably you know 3:30, quarter to four ish. Um, a lot of my clients, a lot of the folks, the journalists I talk to are, are people that are doing what I think is one of the most unnatural acts ever, and that is getting up with an alarm at 1230 or 1 o'clock in the morning um, to be prepared to hit the street. And um, yeah, it's, it's funny, I, I look at um, some of my clients and 
I can start communicating with them anywhere between midnight uh, and about 3.30. And after that, I won't catch them till about 10 a.m. So um, you talk about, um, you know, I call them the donut makers because there's only the donut makers and the multimedia journalists have one thing in common, and that's their alarm clock. They do work extremely hard, especially those folks on the morning shift and those folks on the night shift, too. And sometimes they're, you know, up reporting from a snowstorm and, and you know, they're up there doing an 11 p.m. Uh, live hit. And, you know, they're not going to be home and in bed till probably 2 a.m. Right. And it's all uh, breaking news driven, too. So, y- you know, you may have a schedule but then you might get that phone call. And I'm sure you've gotten that phone call many times where there's a fire or an earthquake or um, something's happened in the marketplace and it's an all hands exercise. So you think you're going to get your four and a half hours sleep um, and you don't, whether it be, you know, you just come off your, your 1 a.m. shift or you're going in at 1 a.m. Um, you know, news drives the schedule sometimes. So it's be kind of unpredictable. And I think that's part of what the drug is for many journalists. I mean, there's that adrenaline hit when you do get that call uh, to come in for a big breaking news event and and or you're about to go live. And I think that's that's addictive for a lot of people, which is why a lot of people stay in the business, uh, despite some of the challenges of the business when it comes to your personal life and your family life. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about the evolution of the broadcast industry. I mean, there's a lot that has stayed the same in terms of what viewers see on the air, but there's a lot behind the scenes just with the business that's changing. So like so many other businesses that are in uh, current disruption. Yeah. So I, I think probably the most disruptive thing in the business today is technology and not the technology itself, but its influence on distribution channels and the way people consume news, you know, specifically the habits of Gen Xers, Millennials, and the iGens. You know, they, they aren't like um, our parents who sat down in front of a TV at 5, 6, and 11 for news. It's, it's a mobile, multi-screen, on-demand world, and uh, that has completely changed consumption. And because the consumption of the news has changed, uh, the channels and the distribution uh, are changing with it. Um, you know, if you look at big research houses um, like Pew Research, they'll tell you that uh, those audiences are declining um, in the national and regional networks really, really rapidly. Local news is still holding its own. Um, it's not declining as fast, but it's all about that consumption and the different channel. Um, and it's driving the cost costs out of the business. Right. And it seems like, I mean, so many big companies are trying to get a handle on this and how to navigate it. And meantime, the uh, the, the people who want to go into journalism uh, or who have been in the business for 10, 15 years are feeling the ground shift under their feet. What do you suggest to, I know you've written a lot of articles on this. What do you suggest to young people in journalism uh, on how they can and can innovate uh, to not be, you know, replaced? Yeah, I, I think that they have to think about their audience um, first locally and then much broader than that. That, you know, I've written extensively that, you know, once upon a time, market size drove everything because um, your audience was the scope or the the reach of that broadcast channel. Um, But today the reach goes far beyond that. 
And I really have my young journalists um, that I coach and mentor focus on creating original content whenever they can to broaden the scale and scope of their audience and think nationally, even internationally in, in scope. And I think that's probably the one thing um, that I, I preach to, to the young journalist is let's reach outside what has been a traditional uh, scope. Do you think they're getting it? Do you think there's a certain generation that's just better at that? I mean, we know that a lot of the younger generations are better at social. I mean, they're posting a lot more. They're posting, uh, you know, just uh, frequently with lots of different kinds of things, lots of things that uh, traditional journalists would not post in the past. I mean, who do you think is doing it well? Um, you, you know, I get a little bit of heartburn <laughs> This is a, a fun topic for me because I do get a little bit of heartburn when I watch people that are in the media business um, not make effective use of social media. And um, the ones that do it well understand a couple things. The first is that it's largely a math exercise, that um, you really want to focus on reach with your social media. And you want to look at influencers and connect with influencers, especially if you're if you're in a media um, position that requires you to have large reach. So, I mean, if, for example, you know, I would rather uh, my clients have five follow- followers that have a million followers each than 200,000 followers with 10 followers each. Right. Um, because at the end of the day, it just becomes about the total um, reach of your content. And uh, I think sometimes uh, people in the industry get way too internally focused and they forget that they need to be reaching beyond the industry. And internally focused, meaning um, their merchandising content to fellow journalists, people in the news business, hoping that it gets retweeted or picked up. Um, but what they don't realize is they're tweeting into their competition. So, you know, I, I think that's an issue. And Christina, I think that one of the biggest issues I've found with my clients in particular is social media is about merchandising. Um, and there's a real time component to that, that if you put out some really great original content, but there's nobody online to see it, Um, it's not going to go anywhere that you really have to merchandise just like somebody would merchandise a retail store. If it's raining, you put an umbrella on the end cap. Um, You've got to merchandise into demand. And the, the other piece that um, we really hit hard on is, you know, I see a lot of folks that will like a tweet and retweet a tweet at the same time when really they've just merchandised into one audience with um, two opportunities instead of splitting those up and trying to time merchandise and reaching two very distinctly different audiences. Interesting. Okay. You know, because I, I've done that. I like and retweet something at the same time. Interesting. Yeah. And you've lost an opportunity to merchandise um, the content a second time. Excellent. Okay, that's an excellent point. Uh, now, and speaking of other industries, reaching out to other industries, how do these lessons or these um, these things that you're teaching young journalists apply to other industries? Because you yourself has, have branched out and are mentoring people in other industries. Right. I, you know, I, I write extensively about making our skills transferable. And, you know, for me, that came 
um, as a byproduct uh, of being terminated out of my very first position um, a bunch of years ago, um, I learned to become flexible and adaptable um, very early on. So in, in today's world, that trans, being transferable and having transferable skills into new industries is about merchandising yourself and telling the story into that industry. So if you're a broadcast journalist, you, your company wants you to bring eyeballs and ears um, to the table. If you're selling widgets um, or in a manufacturing business or you're serving coffee, it's really about the revenue that comes in. So when my broadcast uh, journalist clients start to look at opportunities outside, we have a conversation about their value to an employer and how that employer can drive revenue. Um, and I, I think we frequently miss the, our value proposition. So I love working with Gen X clients um, because they have this unique ability that they very rarely give themselves credit for. Um, they're, they're translators today. They are a generation that can reach down into the millennials and reach up into boomers. And they need to be merchandising themselves to prospective employers or clients or audience in that way. That I can bring you millennials, I can bring you boomers, I can make that translation, and I can generate either eyeballs or revenue that others can't. Interesting. So, and yeah, just another example of, of telling a story and creating value. Tell me about your own pivot. You said that you kind of you did that after being uh, terminated from from a, a position a long time ago. How did you see your own career and how you would uh, and how often you would need to innovate along the way? Um, so I've I've had probably seven different careers over the course of thirty years. Uh, I've worked in six different industries, and you know if I look at that progression, Christina, it was all about taking a skill developed in one and applying it to another. And, you know, the very first role that I came out of, I was a director of sales and marketing for an international retail store chain. Um, I understood distribution and presentation on an international scale. And when I was coming out of that, that role, I looked for other companies that were trying to do something very, very similar. And I began to merchandise myself literally into those companies, um, connecting with hiring managers, telling the story about how I could drive revenue for those organizations from the skills that I had in a previous role. And literally, I just have done that exact same thing six times uh, in a career. Wow, because you know I've heard. I mean, I've read some other um, you know articles and authors and thought leaders on this topic of of innovation, and they talk about how you need to have career capital before you can um, be considered an expert in that field. So, how did you how did you pivot those skills to another industry? What what did you how did you figure out what would apply and what wouldn't? Um, you know, it really came. It comes down. Um, to how you're going to drive value for them. Um, in every particular instance, I could go back to experiences on driving market share, taking cost out, um, driving incremental value. I would look at company initiatives and look at where organizations were going and how my past skills could apply. 
you know, if if you look at good interviewing techniques, and, and that's really what this comes down to, right, is selling yourself in that interview process. Um, it's all about, you know, telling a story that starts with a situation that you found yourself in, the action that you took, and the results um, that you drove. And if you can do that, and you can do that effectively, I believe you can move your career into places you've never even dreamed before. You know, one of the the things I think broadcast professionals uh, have some difficulty with, usually because they hire an agent to do it, is negotiation. And I mean, we all have to negotiate negotiate at certain points in our life. What what are kind of your key um, your key hit tips, hints, uh, things that you look for during a negotiation? The very first thing that I start with when it comes to negotiating um, for compensation is I take a total compensation view of it. So most people go in and try and drive a salary number up, and sometimes they're successful doing that. And sometimes they get two or three thousand dollars more a year. Sometimes they get ten or fifteen, but. Um, I'll try and drive um, a negotiation across every single element of my total compensation, including relocation, makeup um, or clothing, um, vehicle allowances, retention bonuses, sign-on bonuses, health and medical, um, end-of-year performance guarantees. We, um, My clients and I, we look at every little element that's involved. And we look at where a potential employer might have some flexibility. And we work. We work towards a win-win. Unfortunately, too many agents that are in the business and too many of my clients focus on one number. And it either doesn't happen or it's not a win-win situation. So I I think at the end of the day, um, sorry for the cliché, um, it's about it's about looking at that total compensation and what you can live with and what you can't live without. Right, right. And and are you finding that uh, it's it's getting more difficult to negotiate with large media companies that are in current disruption and when companies are are concerned about their own bottom lines and how they're innovating and if this is the right choice uh, that they're making in terms of em- employee? Is it any more difficult now than it was in the past? Absolutely. And the reason is there's more data out there. And it's, it's, the data is available to both parties in negotiation, a client and an employer. Um, if you look at um, large um, data companies like payscale.com or salary.com, the payscale collects, I think, 3 million um, um, compensation, um, weekly compensation data. Uh, data pieces from employers, and they consolidate that all all up by job type and by market. So in every single market, Payscale has got some kind of range for a job. And our employers' HR departments are looking at that when they compensate roles. And in the past, that data didn't exist for multimedia talent, let's say. Um, Today, it does. And you know, you can hire an agent, you can pay an agent 10 or 8 or 10% of your salary to help you negotiate that package. But I will bet 98.9% of the time, it's going to fall within that range um, of data that is accessible to everybody. So 
you know, when we start talking about negotiation with my clients and we're looking for a win-win, we will we'll do things like um, we'll, we'll look at a reten- what we will call a retention bonus. And that is at the end of a year, um, if my performance is acceptable and we're on track, you're going to pay me a retention bonus of five or ten thousand dollars. That way, you're not paying me up front in salary. You're not paying me a package that um, you have to uh, contribute every year of my contract. And you're only paying me because our relationship is strong and my performance is strong. And I've found nine times out of a, out of ten, an employer is receptive to some kind of retention bonus versus talking about salary dollars. What excites you about what's happening in the industry right now? There's a lot of disruption and a lot of, uh, you know, concern, uh, especially on the part of journalists who are facing higher comp- uh, higher competitions, level of competition, uh, who are worried about the disruption in the industry. But there are some really exciting things happening in this industry. What, what excites you the most? Well, first, um, there's a lot of disruption. There's a lot of consolidation. There's a lot of doom and gloom. But... You know, I want to I want to say that there's also a ton of opportunity, and for those that want to be good students um, and continue to hone their craft, uh, this business, uh, this broadcast news business in particular, will continue for decades to come. It will change, it will evolve, but there will be opportunities, and those that want to stay in it, um, there will be an opportunity for them to grow. They may not retire in the way, in the same business they started in, um, but it will continue. What excites me um, is the disruption. Is um, you know one of the things that I look for in my career and I coach my clients to is follow the money. Look where these large corporations are, are spending their dollars today in terms of their business development, and follow that path. I look at some super exciting things, you know, like Newsy, um, Scripps has got a new local um, platform that they're launching in some markets, um, and they're spending a lot of money towards those. If you're confident in your skills, you've got to go follow that. You've got to go explore that. You've got to take a chance um, and see whether or not there's a oppor- long-term opportunity there for you to grow a career to hone your skills and your craft and make yourself more marketable moving on. I I can't imagine a more exciting place for a young journalist than to look at companies like Hearst and Scripps, just to name a couple. And every single one has got a different platform. But you can walk in the door of one of those corporations and end up, uh, gosh, in three different platforms in 52 different markets. To me, that's super exciting. I agree. And a lot of these non-traditional platforms as well, uh, one that comes to mind is The Athletic that has been able to kind of steal away some really top name uh, journalistic talent uh, for use on essentially, you know, an app and and that platform. And, you know, other platforms like the LA Times doing the, the Dirty John podcast, which has been huge for them. So there are these alternative um, platforms and alternative companies that also have a place for good journalism. Oh, without a doubt. You know, the, over the over the top networks, you, you look at what Spectrum is doing, for example, Sling TV, Sling TV could be the, the, um, the answer to, to Netflix in, in this particular business. I, 
there's so much um, opportunity for new channels to develop that, you know, if you keep your eyes and ears to it, nothing but opportunity ahead. Right, right. How do you uh, stay, I ask all my guests this, how do you stay creative and innovative in your own life? You know, I have found over the course of the last eight or 10 years um, that I force myself to develop original content. Um, and that really keeps my ear to the ground. Um, it keeps me knowledgeable in, in a number of different industries. And it, it's about discipline. Uh, we've talked earlier about getting up at, at one o'clock in the morning to be on, on the street at three or three 30. Um, you know, I get up at four or five and I force myself, um, to deliver some new content every morning before six 30. It might be three sentences. It might be, uh, three pages. Um, but that's how I keep myself engaged, uh, and continuing to learn. And I've also learned that if you do that, you can build a following of like-minded people that want to be creative, that want to push outside of the box. And over the course of the last eight years, I've developed a, a following of 50,000 people across my social media platforms. And it's just all about original content and our engagement around it. I know you have uh, written prolifically. I'm, are, is a book in the offing or is that is that something that could happen? <laughs> I, um, a book is a little bit too traditional for me. <laughs> um, I, um, I, I prefer, um, to stay current on a daily basis than, than write something that can become static. It's just, um, it's just my nature. Um, I've had lots of offers, lots of opportunity, uh, but I'd rather, I'd rather write three articles or four articles a week than sit down and do a book. It's, uh, it's just who I am and about staying, my definition of mm-hmm. staying current. Tell me a little bit about Talent Boulevard and how it differs from traditionally what you've done as a, as a, a representative of broadcast talent. Um, talent Boulevard is, uh, is an interesting proposition, um, and it's still evolving. Um, talent Boulevard started by looking at where there was non-value activity in the um, broadcast news business. So, you know, things like um, agency fees and the redundancy on hiring, you you think about these large media companies, they have um, news directors, they have assistant news directors, they have HR departments, and there's agents and recruiters. And all five of those entities or six of those entities are uh, pursuing the same candidate. There's a tremendous amount of redundant cost in that. So um, Talent Boulevard looked at the, the disruption in the business, um, the consolidation, and was trying to put together a new marketplace for how young journalists could get to the market. Um, along the way, um, I learned that that out of this consolidation, um, there needs to be alternative channels um, for the folks. Because, you know, if if the J schools are graduating 5,000 students every May and there's only room for, for 3,200, what happens to the other 1,800? And um, I stopped. Uh, Talent Boulevard came to a screeching halt late last year uh, because I wanted to figure out how to deal with the entire marketplace not just one industry and one segment. 
So um, Talent Boulevard, in terms of the broadcast news business, is a little bit on a hiatus, um, but the goal remains the same, and that is that the organization is going to be um, a self-sufficient organization, um, not necessarily for profit, but to address as many markets and people as we possibly can and cover our costs. So look for some really cool things Think maybe some kind of co-op um, to come out of Talent Boulevard in 2019. Ah, okay. You know what? It makes sense that if the industry is evolving, that the uh, the agent-client relationship or the um, agency-client relationship needs to change somewhat to accommodate some of these new realities. Oh, w- without question. You know, Agents bring value um, in some places, but not everywhere. And, you know, I I don't want to talk um, badly about agents because there are some really, really hardworking agents out there. And it is a tough, it's it's a tough job. Um, But there's consolidation there too. And and there's um, there's challenges there. And um, I think we think about Talent Boulevard you know, it's not just accommodating employers in, in the talent themselves. It's accommodating the talent agents that are in the business as well. So um, lots of change coming there. Lots of change over the next two to three years there. Okay. Before I leave you, I just want to, I want you to tell us where we can find you, tell people where we can find you, and, and leave me with some of your thoughts on your optimism for the industry moving forward. Yeah, so you can find me at um, Talent Boulevard. It's blvd.com or mikemacnamara.com. There's many, many ways um, that we can connect. Um, I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn for those that follow me there, and it's where I publish most of my articles if if it's not at Talent Boulevard. So um, find me there. Let's connect. Um, I love to network because that's where I learn, and that's where my content comes from. so please reach out. Um, my, I think what I look at, my excitement in the, in the business and the industry going forward um, is how committed the people are that are in it. Um, it. These are really, really hardworking journalists on the talent side that are, are working 12 and 14 hours a day. Um, they're a little bit, as we talked about early on here, a little bit adrenaline junkies um, love to see the light come on on the camera and it's go time. Um, they are uh, people that are completely driven and passionate about what they do. So I, I think as we see disruption, we see alternative channels, working with people that are committed to, to honing their craft and to be a part of something bigger than they are is super exciting. And we'll figure that out over the next couple of years as the industry evolves. So, you know, it's about making your skills transferable. It's about learning a new craft. It's about um, extending your reach bigger and broader than ever before and finding the right mentors and influencers that can help you get there. Mike McNamara, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Christina. 
Mike McNamara, fascinating guy and confidant to some of the faces that you see on TV nationally and some of the names, uh, big time executives and CEOs that you might read in the news from time to time. We thank him for his time. All right. I want to tell you about an interesting article I read in Wired magazine. But first, let me tell you about New Age Designs, web design development with a purpose, ambition and analytics. If you need digital marketing, you need design, SEO, SEM, Google Analytics setup. They can do that. They'll get you all set up with web hosting and they know all the key technologies. And that's because they've spent decades managing various UX and web marketing projects for large corporations, giving them the opportunity to work with the most talented digital agencies in the world. So they certainly can help you. Check them out at newagedesigns.com. When you reach out, use the code Fresh Agenda. New Age Designs. They'll take great care of you. All right. Latest Wired Magazine. You got to pick it up. Fascinating. There's a great article about who is most distracted by their digital devices. Turns out it's Gen Xers. Gen Xers were much more likely than millennials to pull their phones out at dinner. Fascinating reason why, though. It has to do with being at this time in our life, kind of a sandwich generation right now, because we have kids that are texting us. We're fielding FaceTimes with teenage kids uh, and others about uh, questions about school or relationships. And then we're also getting emails, phone calls, and more texts from our parents. Uh, oftentimes handling perhaps health care. Maybe we're organizing that, or maybe one of them has been widowed or, or widowered. And so we're, we're keeping our parents company and trying to make sure that they are okay and not lonely. So that's one reason personally why we're more distracted. And then we're more distracted professionally because middle age is when many employees ascend to middle management. And I love this quote from the magazine, only to be pecked to death 24 seven by emails from underlings who beg permission, post queries, and distribute ass covering CC'd email chains the length of war and peace. So that's the latest edition of Wired Magazine's a fascinating insight on who exactly is more digitally distracted. This has been a fresh agenda. I wanna thank you again for your time. I'm always on the lookout for more innovators, entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and I would love to hear from you. Drop me a line. Uh, you can go to my website, christinamendanza.com. Thanks again for being here, and we'll talk to you next time on A Fresh Agenda. This is A Fresh Agenda, bringing your productivity and creativity together to generate your deepest work.